a violent mob, an agitated insistence that their guy really won, pounded on doors and chanted, Stop the count! Stop the fraud! And their physical intimidation did create so much fear, they succeeded in stopping the count and won the presidency for the Republican. This is not a dystopian fantasy. It actually happened in the United States 20 years ago. As our guest today, noted historian Robert Brand Toplin writes, through physical intimidation, a few dozen partisans in the Brooks Brothers riot achieved what thousands of rioters at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, failed to do. Protesters in 2000 helped secure the presidency for their candidate, end of quote. Had the count been allowed to proceed, is it is highly likely that Al Gore might have become president and thousands of Americans who died or lost limbs or otherwise maimed in the Bush invasion of Iraq would today still be whole persons. Climate change would have been high on the national agenda for 20 years, and in Toplin's eye-opening article in History News Network, one learns of the connection between the power players close to both presidents Bush and Trump in both attempts at hijacking democracy, one of which actually succeeded. Robert Brent Toplin is uh, with us today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Robert Brent Toplin taught history for 10 years at Denison University for 28 years at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. He also taught a graduate course at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Toplin has published 11 books, more than 100 articles, and has commented frequently about history on nationally broadcast TV and radio programs. And he has published articles in The New York Times, Time, The Chronicle of Higher Education, The American Historical Review, The Journal of American History, Journal of Southern History, and the Hispanic American Historical Review and other journals and newspapers. Well, the tally between Gore and Bush in Florida kept shrinking as the count went on in November 2000. Now, as with five others in American history, Al Gore did win more popular votes, but, like the others, did not become president. Had the vote count not been stopped prematurely, you say Gore would have likely seen large gains and Florida's key 25 electoral votes would highly likely have gone to the Democrat and he would become president. The mob on January 6, 2021 was a bunch of ruffians and they looked it. Why is the Florida assault on vote counters called the Brooks Brothers riot? Well, they were a group of people who were actually, they're supposed to be citizens of the local Miami area, but in fact, they had been flown in from around the country, and especially Washington, D.C. They were lawyers, they were Republican staffers, and they uh, were dressed up in, uh, you know, button-down shirts and Brooks Brothers sports jackets, and they were there to disrupt the count, the recount. There was a hand count going on uh, with the various machine counts that uh, had some problems, of course, in Florida that became famous. Everything rested on Florida. That was the key state after the election was so close. And uh, they succeeded in disrupting the count, scaring the people who were citizens trying to do their civic duty. Uh, And in the end, they became so fearful about the violence and the intimidation and the ruffian activity that they decided to halt the count in Miami-Dade, which was a big Democratic county. 
and the boats were moving in the direction of Al Gore. The fact over the days and after the election night, uh, it had gone from 1784 boats to uh, down to 327 boats and down to 153 boats. It looked like Gore was on his way to victory. So if this had had been uh, recorded and finished, it probably would have uh, kept others silent in terms of challenging the results. But it never happened, of course. The success was quite evident. And uh, many, in fact, groups on both sides, Republicans, Democrats at the time, agreed that this was a key factor in changing the outcome of the election. There were many other things that occurred later on, the Supreme Court decision and all that. But it's interesting to note that among the Republican operatives, uh, there's even a little bit of a battle as to who got the honor, yeah. who was the one who really deserved the, the credit for achieving this extraordinary mm. change. They really uh, upset things and took things on. Now, it's, it's interesting. In the 2020 election, rioters also pounded on doors and windows. We all saw it on TV, chanting, stop the count and let us in. Why did that physical assault and attempt to intimidate uh, legitimate vote counters work in 2000, but not 2020? And how did, how did they, why did they succeed and it didn't work in 2020? I mean, they were just as trying to instill fear and they succeeded in, tw in 2000. Great question. Yes. In 2000, I would say they had a real chance of making a difference. The election outcome was very close. It could go either way. And the situation in Florida was such a mess. I mean, e each side could make claims about yeah. uh, the real answer, the real solution, all that. But uh, if a big Gore, as I mentioned before, if a big uh, Al Gore uh, lead had been announced, there was a little chance that uh, there would be a chance, an opportunity to turn that around. The key point then was to stop the count. And so the riot in this case was very well planned at the highest levels. It was uh, very well executed, worked like clockwork, mm. and it, it succeeded. But in January 6, 2021, there was really no chance at that right. point for Trump to come out the victor. He, he clearly lost both in the Electoral College and he lost big time in the popular vote, seven, eight million, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so the lie about a stolen election went on and on, but the courts had taken up this lie and in all but one case, uh, they, they denied the, the, the uh, Trump effort to mm. turn things around. And so for Trump, you know, it's this crazy thing when you think about it, that he thought he had a last, a last chance that somehow he would be able to uh, hmm. give a speech. And we can always assume that this is what he was intending, at least hoping joyfully that the crowd would make a difference. But it was a crazy thing to imagine that that would happen. And so they, there they were. The Congress, of course, were in, determined after that yeah. terrible event to, uh, to, to go through with the count that night, that very night. And millions of people witnessed this. So I called it uh, in my, I have a, a website and I write articles for it. And, I called it day of infamy and day of hope. Infamy, this mm. terrible January 6th event, of course, the words used by Chuck Schumer when he called it, uh, we'll be living in infamy, quoting in a sense the words that were used at the Pearl Harbor by FDR. And uh, and yet, it, you know, it was a threat to democracy and all it that. Was. But hope was that this would be really for many Americans. They'd see this and say, yeah, this is I've had enough with Donald Trump. And I think my argument would be that in the long term, 
his star is going down, down, down. And this event helped greatly to uh, to seal his fate. Boy, let us hope so. But we've been disappointed before. Lord knows. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah if, if the listener, if you remember the Bush presidency, you, re- you recall that the president's chief of staff was James Baker III. And he, of course, became president after the Florida uh, thing. Please tell us about his role, James Baker's role, in the Florida fiasco. Yes, very interesting and a very important person, James Baker. A long, distinguished career, but also, in this case, it's one of those darker moments in his biography. Uh, He was, in this case, at this time, 2000, George W. Bush's senior legal advisor and really the chief of this effort to fight the, the recount and secure the election for Bush. Uh, he was a campaign guru in many other uh, political campaigns for the presidency, for the Republican Party. He was very, very important, very, very successful. And he also became the Secretary of State, uh, right. a campaign. I mean, he was a, uh, the, the big chief of staff in the White House and so on. And there's a new book out by Peter Baker and Susan Glasser yeah. called The Man Who Ran Washington. And much of it's very positive. Uh, he achieved so much in international affairs and national affairs and all that. But in this case, yeah. uh, he he had his hand in things. And publicly, he understood publicly the importance of getting the American people to uh, have a perception that something wrong was going on here. So he said publicly that uh, any kind of recounting in this situation would be mischief. And uh, the media would be very important. The news media, give the perception that something terrible is going on here. The Democrats were more focused on the legal side. They didn't really quite appreciate that if you don't get the message out to the public in the situation about what's going on, it, you know, you're not going to have success ultimately. But privately, uh, James Baker even said at one point, he was quoted as saying that uh, we're getting killed on count the votes and who the hell could be against that? Yeah. <laughs> understood clearly, we, we've got to do something to stop this recount or, or we're going to be in big trouble. Oh, my goodness. And I must say, I was shocked to read in your piece the familiar name, one Roger Stone. Tell us, please, about his roles for Bush, Nixon, and Trump, and what did he do relative to the Florida steel? Roger Stone. Roger Stone, yes. He appears over a long stretch of modern American political history. Uh, Ben Baker recruited him, and he had been known as Richard Nixon's dirty trickster. That was the uh, the name for him. And uh, he, in 2000, had been an associate of Donald Trump for a brief time. We often forget about this, but in briefly uh, 2000, he was uh, thinking about running on the Reform Party uh, ticket and be running for president in that year. And so Stone was working with him, but then he got involved in this and he continued into other things. But in this situation, uh, and it's difficult to know the complete truth because Roger Stone is well known as a braggart mm. who puts himself at the center of every story. Uh, there's been a sort of a fight within the Republican group uh, between Roger Stone and a, uh, a leader named Brad Lakeman, who also was very active in organizing this Brooks Brothers riot. But anyway, Roger Stone was involved with uh, the uh, Cubans, Cuban-Americans in Florida, and mm. got messages out the Cuban-American radio to stir the, the interest in coming down to downtown Miami and to protest in great numbers. Hundreds of people did. He uh, helped to organize phone banks 
And the idea was to storm the center of this vote count and try to make a difference. And the idea was that he promoted in the radio announcements, at least he claimed that this was the effort to to make it look like uh, this is the same kind of thing that Fidel Castro tried uh-huh. in Cuba, you know, to steal elections and take control. And in the background was the case of Elian Gonzalez, a youngster, who uh-huh. was, you know, saved in, at sea and had to be returned to Cuba. And the, the uh, Clinton administration had a big mess in that in that situation. And angered it angered many Cuban Americans. So anything yeah, about true. this would be of the crowd. And there, in a wig at Winnebago, parked outside this big building, uh, was Roger Stone uh, operating a sort of command center. <laughs> and of course, that's one last point I'll just throw sure, in. Sure, sure. That, that the story continues even to today. Uh, oh, yeah. We think of the January 6th siege of the Capitol, and now the FBI and the Justice Department are looking into the Oliver, to the guy, like, you know, you knew Oliver Stone and work with him, and I sometimes use the wrong word here. I'm speaking of Roger yes. Stone. And um, anyway, he uh, he did uh, have some relationship with the Oath Keepers, his, one of his six bodyguards. I was apprehended for stirring up uh, actions against the police and so on. And we also remember that mm. he was supposed to be spending about 40 months behind bars for obstruction yes. of justice and other violations, but Donald Trump in December pardoned him. Why am I reminded of this other book title, All the President's Men? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my right. goodness. A movie as well. Yes, indeed. A good one. And many historians have seen Vice President Dick Cheney as the real power behind the throne, that he wielded more power than George W. Bush, who was nominal president. Cheney was, of course, CEO at Halliburton before becoming vice president. Your article reveals that Halliburton also played an important role in the assault on vote counting in Miami. To tell. <laughs> yes, uh, he was chairman and CEO of Halliburton until June of 2000. And then, of course, he became the, the choice for right. uh, vice president. In fact, it's, it's, you, you just have to invent a character like this for <laughs> the, the movies or for, for, for novel. You know, it's hard to believe that here's a guy who was uh, put in charge of the search for a vice presidential candidate and essentially told uh, George W. Bush, I, I've looked over the vast array of talented people, but you know, I'm the one you need. <laughs> I mean, that's what you call chutzpah. Yeah. And uh, anyway, there he is behind the scenes in this case. I love the movie Vice starring Christian oh, Bale yes. as Dick oh, Cheney, fabulous. which, uh, you know, captures some of the, the chutzpah, the guy, the, the, the uh, behind the scenes power. And the and evil. To, yeah. Of course. Yes. And he, uh, Cheney knew the big people of previous administrations, he was involved deeply in them. And so he appointed many of the people who ran the Bush, George W. Bush operation once he was president. Donald Rumsfeld was an old buddy and others. And George Bush was an outsider from Texas. Uh, and so this was a man who behind the scenes in the mm. first term, as you said, uh, Bert Cohen, this is a, he was certainly a, a powerful force and in many ways, sometimes acting like the president of the United States. And the invasion of Iraq had a lot to do with oh, yeah. Cheney and his his friends. It is interesting to note, though, that finally, uh, by the second turn, George W. Bush began to sense that this guy was just no end of trouble <laughs> and had to push him aside in many ways in the final years. So how did how did uh, how did Cheney, what was his involvement in the vote counting in Florida? Well, uh 
not deeply involved so much, except that he had a stake. But the key here, right, which I should point out, I think uh, I got so excited about uh, the whole story of Dick Cheney that I forgot to mention that uh, he arranged for uh, flights. Halliburton provided uh-huh. flights to British people from Washington, various places, and they got hotels and they did very well. Another figure who played a role in this, Ken Lay, uh, Enron, oh, yeah. uh, also Enron provided flights into Miami, oh, Florida. And of course, one year later, yeah. Enron burning down in a terrible scandal. Yes. If you're just tuning in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about an effort to stop the vote, scare people, and uh, make one person president and the other one not, despite the vote. And this is not January 6, 2020, 20, uh, 2021. We're talking about uh, November 22nd. 2000, when Bush became president. And I know that the the, Supreme, the decision was thrown to the conservative-dominated Supreme Court in 2000, but I didn't know that there were three canvassing board members, three people, because of their fear, swung the vote to Bush. Tell us about that, please. Yes, they uh, were really, you know, good citizens. You can imagine if any of us were in their position you're nonpartisan, supposed to be your local person. You're in the canvassing board. There were three of them, and they're Miamians, and they're doing their civic duty. And suddenly they're confronted with these uh, attackers. They're banging on the doors. They're banging on the windows. They're threatening. They're intimidating, and they're demanding to get in. And what happens is that out of some of this uh, melee that uh, the, the folks on the canvassing board decided to move the operation from a place where the media could be standing around watching and, and these people could be uh, threatening them to a, a room upstairs. And then that gave an opportunity for the crowd, the Brooks Brothers crowd, to scream uh, an outrage and uh, you know fraud and they're right. taking this away from the public view and everything. And these poor people, they were quite frightened and eventually they stopped the recount. And why would they do that? Uh, it's clear from what you can read uh, from what they've had to say over the years, even. They didn't want trouble. They didn't want notoriety. Suddenly, you know, they're just local people trying to do their civic duty, and, and they might now become the subject of great controversial mm. national television mm-hmm. to be interviewed. Uh, mm. It would suddenly look like, as they said, that uh, maybe what we're doing is not legitimate. It's not open. It's not fair. There might be in this steamed up uh political environment attacks on their personal situation at home. Who yeah, knew? Really? I mean, it was really thing. David Leahy, who was a supervisor of elections in Miami-Dade, said that this was a factor in our decision. Wow. And uh, it worked. Uh, uh, if they had been able to finish, they had four days more to finish the count. And Gore had won by a fairly decent margin in that recount. And looking at hanging chads and all that, yeah. and the, the problem with the old time, you know, uh, little ballots that went through the machines, then that uh, would have been something pretty significant in terms of what happened in Florida and perhaps what happened in the United States presidential election. And in Iraq and with the environment, for sure. And I had not heard about uh, Joe Geller before. He, you know, five people died as a result of the January 6th insurrection. Uh, but no one died in the Brooks Brothers riot. But what about the fear that Democrat Joe Geller experienced? He was, yes, the Democratic chair in that Miami-Dade situation. Suddenly, he found himself in a mob environment. He 
He was just going up there to grab a sample via a sample ballot, the official Democratic training ballot. And he got one from the officials there and put it in his pocket. Well, the crowd thought this is exactly what we're looking for. They started screaming, he's stealing the ballot. He's stealing, stealing a ballot. Uh, and someone yelled at him, I'm going to take you down. And they started kicking him and jabbing him and pushing him. And he said at one point, I, I thought they knocked me over. I could have literally got stomped to death. And so he wanted to get out of there. Uh, and he ran to the elevator. And some of the Brooks Brothers crowd came in the elevator with him. And interesting, as it went down many floors, they were silent in the in the elevator with him. But as soon as the doors opened and there were news media out there with the cameras, the crowd suddenly jumped out and said fraud and, you know, stealing ballots and so on and screaming and hollering because they understood that, as James Baker said, much of this is about the media. It's about putting on a good performance that uh, will suggest to the public that something sinister is occurring. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the media communicating the message. You may have all the legal uh, uh, laws on your side, but if you don't win uh, the public message, hmm, we see what happens. And I often wondered why the legitimacy of Bush's win was not questioned. Uh, Gore conceded, and I, was, was Bush's win legitimate? And... and what could we have learned? Were there lessons from the Brooks Brothers riot that could have been learned, but were not? Well, you know, the two sides can fight forever about who won and whether it was a, whether this was a legitimate victory for Bush. There's certainly much evidence that suggests that the monkey business and the yeah. whole loosey-goosey election procedures across Florida, you know, led to very questionable behavior. African-Americans was turned away in great numbers in Jacksonville mm. and other places, ran into all kinds of problems. And uh, despite the fact that there had been the Voting Rights Act that was in effect that should have been protecting them, uh, we can recall a movie that was very popular, very controversial. I published a book about it, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11, Michael mm -hmm. Moore's movie. Mm. Beginning of the movie, it's about African-Americans speaking out and uh, to the Congress about, you know, how they were, uh, they, their democratic rights were squashed in this situation. So we never got a legitimate uh, recount and that was blocked. In fact, it's interesting to note that the, the person most in charge in Florida for looking over this recount and establishing deadlines and how to proceed and all that was Catherine Harris. She was a uh -huh. Republican secretary oh, of state. Yeah. She was also co-chair, co-chair of Bush's campaign in Florida. Uh -huh. What an interesting idea of uh, conflict of interest. Just a little. So they both can, can raise questions about this, but uh, it, it really shouldn't be a debate that's settled between pundits, television commentators, right. or lawyers. The voters should decide. The, the end of this should have been count all the votes, discover as well as we can what really happened in this election in Florida and therefore in the election of the United States president's president. And, uh, and that's where it should have been the lesson for us, that in a democratic election has to be fair, the accounting has to be efficient and has to be honest and complete. Uh, I'd say so. I, you know, democracy, what a concept. And, and just, yeah. just a quick question. Did Gore concede too early? I think he should have fought harder. I think his team could have done better. 
in in the struggle and uh, and recognizing that the, the public's view of this had to be more more vigorous in terms of their efforts to show the public what was going on. That would have been good. But once the Supreme Court intervened, yeah, this, yeah. it was extremely difficult. Gore was you know a professional. He was a, a political leader of years uh, for many years, and he was not going to deny what the Supreme Court had decided. Of course, the court decision was a loaded one, highly partisan. It's often, by many people, many historians consider that, you know, there have been some notable Supreme Court decisions that will be uh, live, remembered in mm-hmm, infamy. Mm-hmm. One was the Dred Scott decision, yes. which uh, sort of affirmed slavery in the 1850s. Bush v. Gore, this decision of 2000 uh-huh. is often remembered as one where the court was so political and so hurt, so much hurt the, the, the image of the legitimacy of the court. That's really bad. And another one came 10 years later, Citizens United, yes. which put big money back into politics in a huge way. Uh, well, fascinating talking with you and learning these things. If people want to read more of your stuff, you say you have some blog or something on the Internet. What might that be? That is www.presentandpast.com. Presentandpast.com. You will find 40, 50 uh, essays written. Uh, some of them have been published in various places. We're written to all of them in the last year, in fact. Uh, and I, what I do is, above all, bring uh, insights from history to throw some light on what's going on today. Well, one thing I have learned from history is that we never learn from history. Thank you so much for being with us today, uh, Robert Brent Toplin. Thanks so much. Thank you. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back with some more interesting history, this time with a positive outcome. That whispering in the trees It's two sailors and they're on leave Pipes and chains and swinging hands Who's your daddy? Yes, I am That cat came to play Now we can't run fast enough You'd best stay away When the pushers come to shove Suits and riot Throw back a bottle of beer Suits and riot Jitterbug and brown-eyed man Straight cat fronting up an eight-piece fan Cut me, Sammy, and you'll understand In my veins, hot music ran You got me in a sway And I want to swing it up Now you sailors know where Your women come for love Suits and riot Throw back a bottle of beer Suits and riot Pull a comb through your cold black hair Play, 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 play
we go from one intense battle where the opposite of justice was done with truly tragic effects to another battle of history-making where the clever and determined underdog grabbed victory from the vicious jaws of defeat. And this time, all America was the beneficiary. Flint, Michigan. In recent years, it's been in the headlines for its municipal water problems. The city allowed high levels of lead to exist for years in water that mostly went to families of color. Of course, it's a General Motors town. There are statues of David Buick and Louis Chevrolet, but not of Janora Johnson. The two men obviously created a lot of jobs, but Janora Johnson put her life on the line to guarantee justice and a living wage for those who made the cars. And yet today she's virtually unknown. But our guest today suggests there should be a statue of her put up in Flint. My guest today is Edward McClelland, Ted, whose recent article is titled The Women Who Fought Tooth and Nail for the Flint Sit-Down Strikes. Thanks for being with us, Ted. It's an excerpt from his most recent book, Midnight in Vehicle City, General Motors, Flint, and the Strike that Built the Middle Class. It's a narrative account of the 1936-37 Flint sit-down strike, which led to the establishment of the United Auto Workers as the nation's flagship labor union. His previous book, How to Speak Midwestern, is a guide to the speech and sayings of middle America, which the New York Times called a dictionary wrapped in some serious dialectology inside a gift book trailing a serious whiff of relevance. I love that. When working for the Chicago Reader, McClellan met Barack Obama during his failed 2000 campaign for Congress. His coverage of that race became the basis of Young Mr. Obama, Chicago and the Making of a Black President. Ted's writing has also appeared in the New York Times, L.A. Times, Columbia Journalism Review, Salon, Slate, and Playboy. Yes, they had words in Playboy. <laughs> it does seem that the more history I read, the more women are at the vanguard of successfully bringing real change, seemingly having powers that mere people of my gender do not. Take us back, please, to Flint, Michigan in 1937, when the men on GM's Fisher One plant were subject to an assembly line speed-up. What was that strike about, and how long had it been going on? Well, the strike started uh, at the end of 1936, December 30th, 1936, when a group of workers occupied a Fisher body plant in Flint. And this was a plant that uh, contained the dyes that stamped out uh, parts and bodies that were used at GM plants all over the country. So they thought that if they could occupy that plant, uh, they could shut down the whole company. And you you, you mentioned you mentioned the, the, the speed up. I mean, there was a real... Uh, inhumane pace of, of work there. Uh, if, if they had to make quota every day and if there was a gap in the line or if there was a delay, the, the line might speed up from uh, 40 bodies a minute to 60 bodies a minute and the workers had no control over the pace of work and they would just come home so exhausted that uh, you know all they could do is lift a fork to their mouths and fall asleep and you know, they had no energy or no to uh, spend time with their families or, or, you know, they would be so stressed out. They, they'd go out drinking. So obviously this was mm. a concern for the, for the women who, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in their lives, uh, it was, a, it, and so it was more a strike about working conditions than, 
than about money. It was about that, and it was about um, job security. You know, there was no job security. They said that a foreman could uh, fire you one day, and uh, the next day his brother-in-law would be working in your place. So mm. workers had to, you know, bring food to their foreman or you know paint their garages or throw parties for them. And then the you know, foreman got fresh with your wife. You had to look the other way. Mm. People, people were that desperate for jobs during the Depression. All right. And I have to assume there was there was no union, but the, the speed up just happened to the men and not with their uh, uh, acquiescence at all. It, was, it reminds me a little bit of uh, what this country was originally built on, slave labor. Well, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that uh, there's, a, there's an organizing effort at uh, Amazon Yes, in Alabama, and the, the their concerns are very similar to the concerns of the sit-down strikers. You know, they 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 talk about un, unrealistic work quotas, the pace of work. They talk about job security. They talk about having more of a say in the workplace. So, in, you know, in some ways, we're doing this all over again, mm. eighty-five years later. God. Yeah, well, as I said on the other half of the show, uh, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. Yes. <laughs> who who was Janora Johnson, and what is the genesis of her involvement in the Flint sit-down strike? Well, well, first, how long had what, it been going on when she got involved? Well, she got involved right away. Uh -huh. She was the wife. She was the wife of a striker uh, named Kermit Johnson, and there were women working in the Fisher Body Plant, you know, in the cut and sew department when the uh -huh. The strikers took right. it over, but they were they were immediately told to leave um, because they didn't want any talk about what might be going on between men and women in the plant. You know that that might have undermined mm. undermined support at home uh, and been a propaganda point for the company. And you know, Janora Johnson was someone who had been involved in socialist causes. She brought Norman Thomas to speak in Flint. Norman Thomas, the socialist sure. presidential yeah. candidate, uh, and she went down to the strike headquarters, the Pengelly building and offered to volunteer. And they said, okay, we can work in the kitchen. Um, yeah. And she wanted to do more than that. So first she organized a picket line um, and she had her two-year-old son uh, holding a sign that said, my daddy strikes for, uh, for, for our, us little tykes. For us little tykes. Thank you. You, you saw the picture. Yeah. Um, and uh, then there was an event called the battle of the running bulls. And this is when the police, yeah attacked the plant um you know they they fired tear gas uh the strikers repelled them with with hoses and by throwing door hinges at them and as they retreated they they shot they they, they opened fire and wounded 14 strikers and so you know she, she encouraged women to run down to the run down to the plant and put their bodies between mm. between the uh the police and the strikers and so she said you know women women of i i want to find the point exactly what she said here just, she 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 wanted um i okay i asked all the women here tonight to come down and stand with your husbands and brothers if the police are cowards enough to shoot down defenseless men they're cowards enough to shoot down women women of the city of flint break through these police lines and come down here and stand with your husbands and your brothers your sons and your sweethearts and so the next day she organized uh the women's emergency brigade and this was a, a paramilitary organization mm. and they they were going to support the strikers they were going to put their bodies on the line for the strike just like the men were doing and so all the women were uh, they were issued a red beret they were issued a red armband with mm. you know, eb and white letters and they all they all carried billy clubs you know they, they kind of whittled them down to fit female hands and they they uh carried them under their long coats yeah. and uh they, they they went into action 
when there was another uh, conflict and the strikers took over Chevy four, uh, this was an engine plant and this was making engines for all the cars that GM made. And if the strikers had that, then Jim would definitely have to shut down. Uh, and so they, there was a diversionary tactic when they, they, um, tried to make the company think they were taking over another plant, Chevy nine. So, so that all, so that all the, um, all the, all the plant security would go over there and they went there they fired tear gas. And, uh, one of the strikers, you know, stuck his head out the window and said, you know, they're firing tear gas. So the women, they broke all the windows or as many windows as they could reach in the plant. And they allowed the tear gas to escape. So, um, the next, so, the, so the next day, the New York Times reported their action under the headline, Women's Brigade Uses Heavy Clubs. And the Flint Journal, the local paper, wrote, These women smashed scores of windows in the plant in a hysterical frenzy, seemingly with an urge to destroy. For officials could find no other reason for smashing glass in window after window. But there was a reason. Wow. The reason was to let the tear gas escape. So the women played a, the women played a big role in this. And Janora Johnson, she later uh, got divorced and remarried and and she was known as Janora Dollinger. She she remained active in uh, union causes for the rest of her life. She really she really lived off this this split sit down strike. And uh, she is sort of the star of a movie, um, mm. the dominant figure of a movie called With Babies and Banners. Ah, uh, yes. Is, you can see it on YouTube, and it's a forty five minute documentary about the members of the the Women's Emergency Brigade. And you know you can you can see her. Her leadership qualities there. She she had named herself the captain of the brigade. Yeah. I so there isn't there is no statue of her right. in downtown Flint. Although there, there is a there is a sit down strikers memorial outside of Union Hall in Flint, and it does depict a woman smashing a window with a billy club. And uh, you know there are all these statues of of men all over America, but but not sure. of of women. And as as you were describing it. You know, starting out as the ladies' auxiliary, I was reminded in the early days of the Students for Democratic Society, the SDS, women's roles were uh, making coffee and serving right. serving the men. Well, right. surprise, surprise, women had a <laughs> lot more power sure. than they had given. And, and yeah, the Women's Emergency Brigade did, did spring from a ladies' auxiliary, and they were doing things, as you said, like, you know, preparing food, but they were also bringing in guest speakers and putting on plays and, and tending to some of the, the, you know, helping put out a newspaper and tending to some of the cultural, cultural needs of the strike. Yeah. That's for real stuff. And I, I remember seeing scenes, I think it was in that movie of, you know, throwing sandwiches in through the windows because the men. Right. Well, they would, they would, they would, uh, lower a bucket on a <laughs> rope and, you know, put, they they would put food in there, um, or they, you know they'd have these big you know um, milk containers, milk jugs uh-huh. that they would lift up. These metal metal milk sure, jugs sure. that they would they would lift up there. And how how about how old was Janora Johnson when this happened? I think she was twenty four. She oh, was my. pretty young. Yeah. See, I know she had dropped out of high school to get married and and have a baby. Uh-huh. Um, but in spite of that, she was a very well, uh, well-informed and, and, you know, well, well-educated woman, you know, she, and she, her father had been interested in socialist topics. And so she had done, she had done a lot of, uh, of reading on that. And people these days in the, in the 2020s need to remember that in the 1930s and before that, 
there were a lot of socialists in America. It was not like sure. the bad word that, as someone said fairly recently, when people hear the word socialist, they stop thinking. It was quite legitimate at the time. I mean, G- well, some of the strike organizers were were communists. Absolutely. I mean, Wyndham Mortimer, who was the original organizer uh, sent to Flint, uh, was a communist, mm-hmm. and and when that got around, um. Yeah. Uh, the, the, they replaced him because they said some uh, people accused him of trying to start a, a red empire in Flint. And his replacement, Bob Travis, was also a communist, but he wasn't as he wasn't as open about it. <laughs> Couldn't be as out about it as they say nowadays. Exactly. So what did Janora Johnson ask of the women and what in what ways was this a uniquely powerful weapon? For the strikers, you know, the men who had been working on the assembly line, right. uh, you know, they had their powers. But in what ways was was hers a uniquely powerful weapon? And the women well, in general for the strikers. I can, let me see, I can read uh, what she, let me see what, I'm looking for what she said to the women uh, when she, when she recruited them. Uh, she said, uh, it can't be someone who's weak of heart. You can't get hysterical if your sister beside you drops down in a pool of blood. <laughs> we can't be bothered with having to take care of two people. If one is injured, another is going to go hysterical. Do not sign up for the women's brigade. Take your role in the kitchen. Take your role in the first aid station and the ladies auxiliary. So she, you know, this was, this was in her mind, a paramilitary organization. Yeah. She told the women to be prepared to sacrifice their, possibly sacrifice their lives for the, the cause of the strike. Wow. And, uh, you know, she thought that they would be an effective, you know, buffer because the um, the police were not going to attack uh, women the way they would attack men. Yeah, we've seen that in history. It's worked. It did. Right. It absolutely has worked. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, uh, successful uh, stealing the uh, victory from the... Uh, uh, jaws of defeat <laughs> for, and it was largely due to women. Our guest today is Ted McClelland, uh, and we have this is from an article. Uh, it's an excerpt from his book, "The Women Who Fought Tooth and Nail for the Flint t- Sit-Down Strikes," and the book is called "Midnight in Vehicle City: General Motors." I can re- Oh, sorry, go, sorry. General Motors, uh, Flint, and the strike that built the middle class. You were about to say. I, was, I can read an excerpt of uh, the Women's Emergency Brigade in action uh, when they took the, the strikers took over Chevy Four. Sure. Okay. When the uh, when the, uh, the they formed a human barricade around the plant to keep the police away. When the Flint police arrive, a teenage girl who has joined the Emergency Brigade's human barricade tells them, "You can't get into this plant. Nobody can get in except our men. <laughs> We're only protecting our husbands. Your wives would protect you just the same if they had to. We are peaceful and law-abiding citizens, but we are not going to let you into the plant." What kind of cowards hide behind women? A cop bellows back loudly enough so the men inside can hear. Janora Johnson takes this taunt personally. Her brigade members consider themselves combatants equal to their husbands, brothers, and fathers, with just as much at stake in this strike. Climbing into the sound car, Johnson grabs the microphone to denounce the company's hired thugs. Her firm voice ricochets off the factory's facade. We don't want any violence, Johnson says. We don't want any trouble. My husband is one of the sit-down strikers. We are going to fight to protect our men. Stymied by the feminine wall they're facing, the police mill around on the sidewalk, their aimlessness pointing up the stalemate between the company and the union. 
That's pretty funny. And yeah, the first woman to answer the call up, as I understand, uh, to the call to stand up to the police was a woman in her seventies. Right. She yeah. Had, well, she she after, had every after, legitimate excuse not to do it. And what, then a teenage girl stood up. What reason did this w- woman in her seventies give for taking the lead like that? This was after. Janora tells women what they should expect. The first to stand right. is a woman in her 70s. This is going to be difficult for you, Janora cautions. You can't keep me out, the old woman insists. My mm. son's worked in that factory. My husband worked in that factory before he died, and I have grandsons there. The women applaud as the grandmother steps forward and signs her name to the register. Next to sign is a teenage girl. My father works in that factory, she says. My brothers work in that factory. I've got a right to join, too. Interesting. Boy, that they were kind of ahead of their time, for sure. And let's face it, a lot of the people on the left back then in the 30s, you know, when things looked desperate, when there was, you know, no choice between the uh, all-powerful uh, capital run by white men, all of them, sure. uh, and and women. And they, it was, uh, you know, it was a really big deal to do that. But the idea of socialists and communists, it was not that much of a big deal. Uh, in the uh, in the 1930s, in fact, a lot of the people that many of us would consider heroes these days, like right. the people of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade that fought in the Spanish Civil War against the fascists. They were men and women, and a lot of them were communists and, of course, socialists at the time. And, but after World War II, Walter Ruther yes. uh, kicked them all out of the Union. Kicked who out of the Union? The women? The socialists and the communists. Oh, right. Yeah, that was unfortunate but the 50s was another time right. of terror he, he, he thought that he thought that they would you know have uh discredited the union right. during during the the cold war but you know as i as i argued that the the labor union i think was a, a better solution to uh, bringing prosperity to workers than the communist yeah. state was <laughs> and they, they they found that out for sure and and yeah uh, you know, they were the early organizers of it, but the fear uh, was significant, and uh, the labor unions uh, did thrive. And one of the reasons yeah. they thrived is because of this legendary Flint strike. What- uh, yeah, I mean, it, it you know, it, it led to the establishment of the United Auto Workers, and the United Auto Workers was really the flagship union yes. in the in the United States among industrial workers. I mean, they they set the wages, they they set the benefits uh, for for everybody and you know well and the the auto industry there's no there's no other industry where there's so much value added in production as there is in the auto industry so you know there's obviously money to be made and money to be shared and they made sure it was shared fairly um, Mm. among the people actually doing the work on the assembly lines so i i that as you say i mean this it, it helped create a middle class, and uh, you know, I was born in the fifties, and uh, we had sure. a large middle class back then. We right. really yeah, did. Yeah, well, I, I think I say in the book that you know, in the fifties, you know, the real workers' paradise was in Michigan. You know, everybody huh. had two cars, and you could get a new one every year, every two years. You know, you had a, you had a vacation home up north. You could make uh, enough money to send your kids to college, and you know, the, I, I went to high school in Lansing, Michigan, and it was right across the street from an auto plant. And uh, this was in the early 80s uh, when kind of things were starting to close down. And I remember a chemistry teacher gave gave us a lecture and he said it used to be you could just walk out of here. You didn't have to study in school. You could just walk out of here, walk across the street, walk into that plant and, you know, get a great job. 
uh, but those days are over. You yes. guys are going to have to study and, and go to college. But yeah, I mean, you know, I have talked to baby boomers who, you know, you got out of high school in 65 and went to work at, at Oldsmobile sure. three, three months later. And, you know, by the time he's 20, he's got enough money to buy a house. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, we can thank the unions for that, and uh, I, I do think, you know, it's been a tough, tough time the past few decades for unions, but they're starting to come back. I think so. Back to nineteen thirty-six, thirty-seven, the Flint strike. How was it finally resolved? How long did it take? And in what ways did this event leave a real legacy on auto workers going forward? Well, it lasted forty-four days, and it was finally finally resolved. Um, Governor Frank Murphy, who was later a Supreme Court justice, um, well, he he had he had come up with a what he thought was um, a resolution, but that broke down because uh, the, the union found out the company was going to negotiate with another group of of workers who weren't supportive of the sit down strike. So it finally had to go to the federal level. Francis Perkins, the Secretary of Labor, uh-huh. got involved, and then. Franklin D. Roosevelt had to make a phone call to General Motors to say, hey, you need to sit down yeah. um, and talk to these guys because, you know, it was imperiling the industrial recovery that, that you know, its popularity depended on. And so they finally resolved it uh, in a series of sort of all-day conferences in Detroit. And the workers, they, they got a five-cent-an-hour raise. They got an agreement um, for time studies uh-huh. so uh-huh. that the, the, the speed-up would not be – the lines would not be sped up beyond human endurance. Uh, and um, they got an agreement that layoffs would be by seniority. Uh, so they got job security. And, you know, this, as you said, led, you know, I, 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 a close family friend of mine was a sit-down striker. Yeah. He was 21 years old. He started out making 25 cents an hour. And by the time he retired in the 70s, he was making $27 an hour as a tool and die maker. And he had lifetime health care, which I think is probably one reason he lived to, to the age of 98. Wow. Mm. I mean, you know, it got to the point where that, you know, they had the, what you call the 30 and out provision, which means if you work for 30 years, you can retire on full benefits. Ah, when we all participated in the economy and uh, we got, uh, and people got credit for all participating in the economy. Well, I wonder what a statue of Janora Johnson would look like. Would it be, you know, in this military style costume and a I would think so. Club, she'd perhaps? be wearing yeah, she'd be wearing her beret and holding her club. You know, it's just I mean I don't know, but you know, a statue you know, statues are always monochromatic and you wouldn't you wouldn't get that dramatic Maybe they could just put a red beret on top of the statue. That would probably be the best thing and put a red armband. Uh-huh. You know, they have an event every year, uh called white shirt day um in flint and this is a celebration of the end of the sit-down strike and they call it white shirt day because you're supposed to wear white shirts to show that you're just as good as the company and they have women who dress as members of the women's emergency brigade but they're serving food which is kind of what you know johnson didn't want to do (laughs) they're serving bean soup and apples and bread which is what the strikers ate inside the plants oh interesting it's good to yeah you know history is is about what's chosen to be remembered as well as right. that which is intentionally not yeah. remembered. A lot but of it is, is not remembered. Go ahead. But that sit-down strike and the Women's Emergency Brigade are definitely remembered in Flint. And I hope that by writing, writing, you know, all the sit-down strikers are dead now. And mm-hmm. that's one reason I wrote the book. So it would continue to be remembered uh, beyond the boundaries of Flint and beyond the United Auto Workers. Well, some of the most important history 
is uh, not particularly well-known history. There's a reason for that. We so prefer myth to history. Right. It fits well, I in. mean, I, I thought this was a you know great story. Something happened in my home state, and it's full of action. You know, it's full of conflict, and um, it's got larger-than-life characters like uh, John L. Lewis and Alfred P. Sloan and Francis Perkins and FDR, and it's also you know got the voice of the common man on the on the assembly line. And yeah, there were. And justice I mean, actually prevailed. Justice yes, actually the, prevailed. The un, the underdogs win. One, the group of a group of auto workers defeated the largest, most powerful corporation in the world. Nice to have that inspiration there. <laughs> right. And hello, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Amazon. Come on, guys. We He's selling start. my book at least. <laughs> <laughs> but we need I, to I, have I have to admit I have to admit you know I'm always checking my Amazon ranking oh, <laughs> like, all, like like so many authors but they deserve a union and yes and the, and, and and you know Amazon is kind of in the same yes. position as GM it was in the 1930s you know it's 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 the dominant company yep. in the United States and it, it's going to set the wages and the working conditions for uh all workers. So if, if they can organize Amazon, they can organize anywhere. And the same thought, it was the same thought in 1936. If we can organize GM, we can organize anywhere. We can do it. We can yeah. do it. There's that poster, I think. Right. We can do it. It's, it's a woman, is it not? With their, Ro Yeah, Rosie the Riveter. Rosie the Riveter. Yes, we can do it. And again, it's women taking the vanguard and making the big change. It's happened throughout so much history. Well, it's been very interesting and a good talk. The book is called Midnight in Vehicle City, General Motors Flint and the Strike that Built the Middle Class. And the author is Edward McClellan. Thanks so much for being with us today. And it's oh, thanks for having me, Bert. Nice to have a good story with a good ending. Thank you. <laughs> there once was a union maid who never was afraid of the goons and the gangs and the company things and the deputy sheriffs who made the raid. She went to the union hall when the meeting it was called. And when the company boys came round, she always stood her ground. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Yeah.
equal pay And we will have our say We're workers to the same as you And fight the union way Oh, you can't scare me I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the union Oh, you can't scare me I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the union 